So for a few weeks now, uh, we've been focusing in on the theme of how to experience greater freedom in Christ. Freedom in Christ is something talked about and referenced numerous times in the New Testament. And uh, uh, for that reason, really, the, the title of this series of messages is Living in Liberty. What does it look like? What does it feel like? How do we do that? How do we experience greater freedom or liberty in Christ? And it's been some time now, in fact, a good number of years uh, since I've taught on uh, this material, this particular material. But if you've been part of CCV for any number, any length of time or number of years, you might recall uh, that we've gone through this material before, uh, several years ago. And as I've done so, I've, I've often used uh, a, a number of books and a workbook in particular written by author Neil Anderson. Um, if you're not familiar with Neil, I certainly recommend his material to you. And in particular, we're going to be using uh, a workbook or referencing a workbook called The Steps to Freedom in Christ. And these are available uh, to each and every one of you if you would like one uh, to use uh, on your own. You can You'll be able to make use of it a little bit here on Sunday mornings, but if you want to take some more time and work through that material on your own, um, I commend it to you, and those are available at the Welcome Station. So feel free to pick one up if you haven't done so already. My point is that I want to give um, proper credit where credit is due. Uh, The steps to freedom that I'm going to be teaching into over the next two months uh, were not my idea. They were packaged uh, by Neil Anderson. But frankly... Uh, I don't want to you know, give too much credit to him because everything that he says and writes comes straight from Scripture. And so that's what we're going we're gonna to kind of reference what he talks about, but we're going to couch it in terms of what the Bible teaches about freedom in Christ. And I want to remind you of the, the introduction that we've uh, covered over the last few weeks, really, which is simply that the heart of God and the call of God upon each one of those who follow Christ is to walk in freedom or experience freedom in Christ. Now, let me share with you an example uh, that has to do with step one. Step one in Neil Anderson's workbook is called counterfeit versus real. Counterfeit versus real. And by counterfeit, he's speaking specifically of counterfeit religions or counterfeit spiritual experiences. And what we're going to cover this morning, what John speaks of in, in these verses we've referenced from 1 John chapter 4, is the reality that, 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 that not all spiritual experiences are created equal. Not all religions are to be considered equal from the vantage point of God. There is such a thing as false religion. There is such a thing, as you're going to see from the Word of God, as the doctrines of demons. And if we want to be free, we have to be very aware of what those are and renounce any participation or involvement with them. So I want you to take a look at an example. This is the story, a video, it's about five minutes or so, just a testimony from a woman of God who came to Christ and came out of witchcraft. Check this out. Oh, 
Yasmin Suri became a U.S. citizen in 2008. Since then, the Department of Homeland Security invites her to sing at their events. Yasmin was born in India to a Sikh family. They moved to America when she was a child. She didn't speak English, and unfortunately, because of her ethnicity, she was the brunt of cruel jokes from the other children. I felt a sense of loss of control of my life, and I wanted to have control of my life. So I thought the more that I could get spiritual experience, the more I would be able to control my environment and the more I would be able to control people. So I started getting into horoscopes. I started studying about psychics and witchcraft. I would begin to have demons, which I didn't know there were demons at the time, reveal themselves to me on a continual basis. And they would just speak to my spirit that I had been born for a purpose and that for and that purpose would be fulfilled as an adult Yasmin was engrossed in the occult the experiences that I would have is I wouldn't be satisfied it would just leave me just more empty it didn't give me an answer it gave me power and in a sense of control but there was no no answer for me she met a man who was involved in the occult he took her deeper into witchcraft I moved in with him and uh, we had an, uh, quite an intense connection when it came to spirit to spirit and having the occult draw us together. In our house we would have uh, crystals, uh, huge pictures of Ramses and Pharaoh all over. When her birthday rolled around, she asked a friend for a Shirley MacLaine book. Her friend was a Christian. So she gave me my present and I opened it up and it happened to be a Bible. So I said, oh, where's my book? <laughs> and she said, well, I wanted to show you uh, something in the Bible. And she opened it up to Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 9 through 14. And God says that those that consult with familiar spirits or wizard or enchanters or that those that practice necromancy and a whole list of things, he said that those things are an abomination to God. And those scriptures jumped out at me from the Bible and they jumped off the pages and they actually went right through my spirit. And I was convicted of sin for the first time in my life. It seemed to Yasmin that everywhere she went, she met Christians. I would ask him questions like, how does this Jesus come inside of you? I, I mean, what does it mean that you mean a man, another man comes inside of you? What does this born again mean? What does save mean? So I would ask questions and even though I didn't understand them, I would still learn at home her boyfriend became violent Yasmin was also having vivid nightmares that kept her up at night during this time another Christian friend gave her a message she said that the man that I was living with was gonna kill me if I didn't leave and that the Spirit of the Lord told her that I must leave him immediately when she spoke to me I just started crying it broke something in me and I had and I knew it was God even though I didn't know God so I um, I packed all my bags and I told my mom that I was moving to North Carolina. She moved in with her brother who invited her to church. I walked into that church and when the worship started, I began to weep and weep and weep uncontrollably during worship and singing songs. And I had no idea what was happening to me. And I felt how much God loved me and he didn't hate me for all the things that I was doing in my past and all the abominations that I was practicing and how much he wanted to reach out to me 
and be a father to me. After going to church for a while, she made a decision. And I looked up into heaven and I said, Jesus, I'm a sinner. I believe what people have said about you, that you're the son of God, that you died on the cross for me and you died for my sins. I said, please forgive me and come inside of me and live in me and be the Lord and Savior of my life. The change was almost instantaneous. The next morning, all my bad dreams were gone. My torment was gone. Everything was gone. It was like a weight had been lifted off my shoulders, the weight of sin, the weight of deception. And I felt like I was alive for the first time in my life. I had a big bonfire and I burned everything that I had, even the music, the books that I had, um, the objects that I had all over my walls, the pictures, the clothes, the jewelry. I had to break everything in my life and break those chains over my life. Yasmin's life was on a new path. It was really a pretty awesome walk with the Lord. Um, I was thankful to the Lord for just opening my eyes so I could see. Instead of teaching people about the New Age, the Lord had me um, telling people how dangerous the New Age is. She always loved to sing, and as she developed her voice, she knew it was a gift from God. Come to Jesus, come home. I love music because music is such a way that God speaks to our spirit. And God says that he inhabits the praises of his people. I see so many people, whether it's in the church or out of the church, that are so lonely and they're hurting and they're desperate. Jesus is the only one that can fill that void. The Lord really spared me from death, not just spiritual death, but physical death and emotional death. I could have lost my mind. I could have been internally separated from God. So I thank God for his mercy and his love that he loved me when I had nothing to offer him. Amen. So did you catch that? She had a big bonfire, and she burned everything she owned that was associated with witchcraft. That, my friends, is an act of renunciation. So we're going to talk about what it means to renounce any participation or, in, or involvement in false religion. So let's turn our attention back to 1 John here. That was by way of introduction, and uh, I want you to see how what we've just heard from Yasmin, her story, dovetails so well with what we're reading together in 1 John chapter 4. Look with me first at verses 5 and 6, and notice the distinction that John makes here between the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. He writes, they, and he's referring here back to the false prophets that he spoke of a few verses earlier, they, false prophets, are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world and the world listens to them. We are from God and whoever knows God listens to us, but whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. I want to speak to you this morning about recognizing the spirit of falsehood and discerning the spirit of truth from the spirit of falsehood. This is the heartbeat of what John is encouraging us and exhorting us to be able to do. 
So let's start here. We have to start with the basic recognition that this is real, that what I'm talking about this morning, the reality of false religion and uh, counterfeit religious or spiritual experiences is genuine. I'd put it to you this way. I think the first takeaway from John's words in 1 John 4 is this, that the spirit of falsehood seeks actively to deceive people and to lead them astray through the use of counterfeit religious experiences or spiritual experiences. There is indeed a spirit of falsehood at work in the world. There are, in fact, deceiving spirits that want to lead people astray and keep them from understanding the truth regarding Jesus Christ. Have you noticed that this notion of spiritual, uh, spirituality doesn't seem to be losing a lot, of, a lot of popularity? Everybody is eager to talk about spiritual reality or spiritual experiences. And yet, if you start to talk about religion or church, they're like, no, I'm not interested. Isn't, isn't that fascinating? People are drawn to spiritual reality. People are drawn to spiritual experiences. In fact, maybe one of the things that we could do if we want to be more effective in speaking to people, uh, given the cultural context that we live in, is to just couch our experiences in the terms that are more attractive and appealing to them. If you begin to talk with people about your own spiritual experiences, you might find that they're rather interested to hear, perhaps more interested than you would imagine. But not all spirituality is created equal. Not all spirituality is equally good and right and true from the vantage point of God. So moving back up then from verses 5 and 6, where John talks about this distinction between the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood, notice what he says in verse 3. Every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. Now, you can choose to believe it or not, but this is the viewpoint of not, not only the Apostle John, but all of the authors of Scripture. You'll see it in Paul, you'll see it in Peter, you'll see it from the lips of Jesus himself. Every single one of them recognized the reality that there is a spirit of deception, the spirit of Antichrist, at work in the world. And friends, nothing's changed over the last 2,000 years. That spirit has not gone away. It's been defeated by what Jesus did at the cross, but it's not gone yet. That spirit is still at work around us in the world and in the lives of people that we know and love. So what John's verses reveal to us, what John's words reveal to us is the reality that the spirit of the Antichrist at least from his perspective, but I think from the perspective of many others, is alive and well and at work in the world to deceive people by causing them to embrace beliefs and practices which are essentially false religions. That's how this works. To put it as simply as I can, false religions are counterfeits to the real thing. Counterfeits. 
They're imposters. They're not from God himself. They are from the enemy of God, the adversary of God, who wants desperately to keep men and women in darkness and uses every means of deception at his disposal in order to do so. This should remind us of what Jesus himself said about the devil. Do you remember his famous words in the Gospel of John? They're recorded. Jesus said that the devil is the father of lies and that deception is his native language. I'm also reminded, as we think about this, of Paul's memorable words in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, 13 to 15, where he describes the influence of false apostles. Listen to what Paul wrote on this subject. He said, such people are false apostles, deceitful workers, masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It's not surprising then if his servants also masquerade as servants of righteousness. Their end will be what their actions deserve. Now listen closely and think deeply about what Paul's saying to us. He's saying that those who seek to deceive people always present themselves as if what they're saying is true and right and good. They're not so foolish as to just come right out and admit they're lying or that they're trying to deceive you or entrap you. In fact, many, I would suggest, are actually convinced that what they're saying is true and right. But it's not. They're masquerading as servants of righteousness. And the devil himself masquerades as an angel of light. So these references complement, then, what we're reading from 1 John chapter 4. And taken together, they speak to us about a very real and present danger at work in the world around us. The danger of people being deceived and thereby enslaved by spirits of falsehood. Spirits of false religion. Here's another similar insight given as advice from Paul to Timothy. In his first letter to Timothy, chapter 4, Timothy was serving at the time as pastor of the church in Ephesus. And we'll see later that some amazing things happened in Ephesus with regard to false religion being confronted and renounced. Here's what Paul says to Timothy. He says, The Spirit clearly says that in later times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. Think about how serious this is. Paul's warning Timothy. And he's saying, beware of this. Watch out for it. But he's also saying that it's not going to get better. It's only going to get worse, right? Notice, in later times, Paul says, In later times, in the end of times, this is going to be a significant problem. And that's now, isn't it? Frankly, that's now. Paul says that deceiving spirits will cause people to abandon their faith 
and instead follow things that are taught by demons. In some translations, the phrase used there is actually to follow the doctrines of demons. So the point is that people will be led astray by spirits of falsehood, even to the point of abandoning their faith in Christ. This is a description of what the end times will be like. And as you look around at the world and at the lives of other people, the beliefs and practices of other people that you may know, I suggest that you keep this in mind. Recently, uh, I heard an alarming quote uh, in a message I listened to from a well-known and well-respected Bible teacher named Derek Prince. I was listening to a teaching by Derek on uh, false religion on this very subject, and here's what he said. To paraphrase, without quoting him exactly, he said that for every one person deceived by the doctrine of atheism, he believes that there will be 1,000 people in hell for believing in false religions. Think about that. For every one that just believes there is no God, there'll be a thousand that believe the wrong thing about God, believe in a false religion or practice a false religion. And he said, atheism is too obviously not the spiritual truth that so many people are seeking. And this is precisely why they're easily led astray into false religion. Now notice, again, to accomplish this measure of deception, the enemy and those who work on his behalf actually have to pretend to be something they're not. They have to masquerade as something good and true. The devil, Paul says, presents himself to people as an angel of light. And this is the nature, I suggest, of anything counterfeit, right? The closer a counterfeit is to the real thing, the more convincing it will be. So think about counterfeit money as an example. When's the last time you went to a store and you handed the clerk a $20 bill to pay for something and you noticed that they took out a little marker and checked your bill to make sure it was legitimate? Anybody had this happen? It happens all the time, right? It's become commonplace. Some of you, yeah, Ray says, I do it at the store, right? Well, why, why is that important for cashiers to do? Because counterfeits are real. And because there are counterfeit bill, bills in circulation. And there has to be a way to quickly determine what's real from what's not real. And so in this case, um, as you'll find, I, I looked this up on how things, uh, howstuffworks.com. Really great little website, uh, in case you're wondering. Um, and it talks all about what's, what's known, uh, I'm sure Ray is familiar with this, what's known as the counterfeit detector pen. Wouldn't you like to just have one of those to carry around in your back pocket? The counterfeit detector pen solves the biggest counterfeiting threat today. It used to be that a counterfeiting operation used expensive presses and special inks and papers to create exact duplicates of the bills. Some still do, of course. But today the threat is much more mundane. People with color copiers and color printers try to create passable facsimiles of a bill at home. They're not trying to make an exact copy. They're trying to create something close enough that people won't notice if they give the bill a passing glance. These folks are not particularly careful or meticulous, so they copy or print onto normal wood-based paper. So here's how the pen works. The counterfeit detector pen is extremely simple. It contains an iodine solution 
that reacts with the starch in wood-based paper to create a black stain. So when the solution is applied to the fiber-based paper used in real bills, no discoloration appears. The pen does nothing but detect bills printed on normal copy paper instead of the fine papers that are used by the U.S. Treasury. Now, why do I tell you this? Well, of course, I want you to know that fake $20 bills do exist. More importantly than that, I'd like you to be equipped to be able to begin to tell the difference between a fake $20 bill and a real $20 bill. But there's something even more important than all that. What I want you to recognize is that this is all an analogy to what we're talking about this morning, the existence of counterfeit spiritual experiences. And God has not given us, unfortunately, a counterfeit detector pen to tell when we're dealing with a false religion or a false spiritual experience, a spirit of falsehood. But what he has given us is even better. Here's the good news. He's given us the Holy Spirit, the spirit of truth. And the spirit of truth helps us to discern whenever there's a spirit of falsehood at work. So how does this work? Well, this, is the, this brings us really to the first practical takeaway that I want to put before you, a step that you can take toward freedom in Christ. There are really two steps I want to talk about in short this morning, and here's the first one. The first one has to do with being able to discern or recognize when you're dealing with the spirit of falsehood. To experience freedom in Christ, we must test the spirits, as John says, to discern between what's true and what's false. God has given us a way to do this. Now, let me go back to the analogy here a minute just to have you think about this a little more deeply. Did you know that according to the law, you can actually be arrested and imprisoned for passing a counterfeit bill even if you received it from someone else and you didn't know it was fake? Serious. That's the law. Somebody gives you a fake $20 bill, and if you don't know that it's fake, and you go to the store and try to use it, you can be held responsible. You can, you can be held liable for that. That's how the law works. And I think that there's an, a fascinating parallel here with what we're talking about, because many people who participate in false religion don't know that it's false. They think it's okay. They think it's real. They think it's interesting. They think it's powerful. They can think all sorts of things. It doesn't matter whether they know that it's fake or not. The point is, you can still be held responsible for your participation, and you can still be subject to bondage in the spirit if you participate in any form of false religion or spiritual experience. So step one here is about awareness. It's about our awareness that false religion does exist and there is a way to sniff it out. There is a way to discern, by God's grace, the difference between what's true and what's not true, what's real and what's counterfeit. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, Paul says, anyone you forgive, I also forgive, and what I've forgiven If there was anything to forgive, I've forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake in order 
that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. Now, Paul's talking about this in the context of expressing forgiveness, and that's actually step three. We're going to come back to that in a few weeks and talk about the power of forgiveness. But I want you to think about what Paul refers to here in verse 11. He's saying it's very important for us to be aware of the schemes of the enemy so that we can avoid being entrapped by them. I think of an experience I had years ago um, in my earlier days of ministry uh, leading a young man named Jared through the Steps to Freedom using this very workbook by Neil Anderson. And um, over the course of the, uh, the several meetings that we had, um, it finally became apparent that Jared was struggling with anxiety attacks, panic attacks, and we had, a, a, at first, a very difficult time figuring out what the root of this manifestation was. Where is this coming from? Why, why, are you, why is he, you know, we, we, we kept discussing and praying and, and trying to figure out what the source of this problem was in his life. It was clearly a lack of freedom in Christ. Finally, with the Lord's help, we were able to discern the connection. And in this case, it wasn't something that Jared himself had done, but something that his grandfather had, had been involved in two generations earlier. His grandfather was a practicing Mason, a high-level Mason. And what came to mind and what we began to talk about and study and pray into is uh, the reality that's described in Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 to 6. God says, and this is in the Ten Commandments, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. So what I'm, what I'm telling you is that it's possible for a person to be held in bondage, not only because of their own involvement in false religion or spiritual experience, but even because of the involvement of an ancestor, particularly within a few generations. That's how dangerous this is. What John's words call us to is something like the simple process of a store clerk pulling out that counterfeit detector pen and checking the bill that they've just received. Only in our case, the process of discerning false spirits comes back to to one simple little test. And John gives it to us straight up. He says it like this. Every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. There it is, bottom line. In other words, the defining mark of any and every false religion or false spiritual experience is that it will fail to to acknowledge that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's the test that we've been given. Now, I don't know if you've thought about that or pondered it or put it into practice, but as you listen to various people teach on the subject of religion or spirituality, ask yourself the question, is this man or woman teaching me something good and right and true, as evidenced by the fact that their message revolves around and depends upon 
the recognition of Jesus' lordship. If they're trying to teach you something spiritual or religious and they don't affirm the lordship of Christ, beware. Don't subject yourself to that influence. So this is the test then that John speaks of back in verse 1 when he writes, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God. Because many false prophets have gone into the world. Here's the test. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. There's your test right there. Here's the sad reality, right? What John's telling us with these words is that not every person who claims to know God or speak for God really does. Some of them are speaking for someone else. Not every religion or spiritual experience is to be considered equally good or right or true, despite the popularity of those tolerance bumper stickers that promote religious equality. And here's where it gets really tricky, right? False religion and spiritual experiences, though they are false in the sense uh, that John's describing, they do have real power. They have real power, a power that can appeal to people and capture their allegiance. But in the end, the point that John's making is that the power is demonic, not godly, not Christ-like. It's not good and right and true from the vantage point of God himself. So I know it's not politically correct for me to talk like this. I hope that's okay with all of you. But the truth is, right, thank you, The truth is, according to God's word, that we are responsible to discern what is false and not believe it and not participate in it in any way. We are responsible as followers of Christ to recognize falsehood whenever a person or group of people are teaching or practicing a form of religion that does not acknowledge Jesus as son of the living God. And we are responsible not only to avoid these deceptive influences, but even to confront them with the truth. So step one is is simply this. Using discernment in the Holy Spirit, don't ever allow yourself to come under the influence of deceiving spirits or spirits of falsehood. Don't open the door of your heart and mind to their influence Instead, make every effort to keep that door firmly closed to every spirit but the spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ. You want to open your mind to the spirit of truth, but close your mind to the spirit of the Antichrist, the spirit of deception and falsehood. Now that brings us to step two. Step two, what do you do if you come to the realization or the conviction, as Yasmin did, that you've been involved previously with some type of false religion or spiritual experience. And the Bible gives us a very clear answer regarding what to do. Here's what it amounts to. Now, this answer doesn't come directly from John, but we'll look at some other passages where we can gain insight into what to do and how to do it. Here's the bottom line. Those who've participated in false religions 
may be subject to demonic bondage until they confess and renounce that involvement before God. So any person who's participated in a false religion or spiritual experience is subject to, legally, in the spirit, the bondage of the enemy unless or until they renounce their involvement in that activity. Very important that we understand how to do this. And this is precisely why John urges his readers to test the spirits, right? What's the importance of the test? It's to avoid being deceived. Because once you've been deceived or participated in something that subjects you to the power of the enemy, then you've got to break it. Then you've got to get free of it. Then you've got you to deal with it after the fact. Better to deal with it before it happens than after it happens. But both steps are vital for us to understand. John didn't want people to come under the influence of the devil because he knew that the influence of these deceiving spirits would lead people into bondage. He's trying to help people avoid that experience. But if you find yourself in that experience, there is a way to regain your freedom. So here, truth be told, we have to depart from John's words for just a few moments to discover in Scripture what it means to renounce something. Maybe this is familiar terminology to you and you you understand already, but let me just take a moment to explain and illustrate what it means to renounce your involvement in something. Perhaps some of you are unfamiliar with this concept. What, What is renunciation? It's the verbal act of declaring that something that you have formerly done or been affiliated with will no longer have any place in your life. It's like cutting it off. I'm done with this. This was part of my life. This did have influence over me, but it will no longer have influence over me. How do we do that? How do we cut something off? We declare out loud in the presence of God and other witnesses, this is no longer part of my life. I renounce it. So, Spiritually, this act recognizes that by engaging in false religious practices, we have actually given legal rights to our enemy to influence our lives. Did you know that? Whenever you practice a false religion or or false spiritual experience of any kind that's not centered on Christ and doesn't acknowledge his, his reality, you are giving the enemy an open door to your life. You're giving the enemy influence over your thoughts, over your feelings, over your actions. You are giving him access. And the only way to to shut that door is to renounce those activities. So to remove those rights, we have to verbally renounce any and all involvement in false religion, which does not acknowledge Christ, and thereby ask God to cancel its negative effect upon our lives. So, a couple of examples from Scripture. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2. Paul says this about himself and those who are with him in leading the early church. He says, rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways and we do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. 
But on the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And recognize here that Paul, in the context of 2 Corinthians, is warning the church about the influence, again, of false prophets, false teachers, and false apostles. He's distinguishing himself from them and their approach to leading people astray. And he says very clearly, we have renounced secret and shameful ways and we do not use deception or distort the word of God. I think of three other examples in scripture that are great illustrations of how this principle works. And I'll just end with these quickly and then we're going to enter into some ministry time uh, on this subject. One example that comes to mind Uh, maybe you've considered this already, is Peter's renunciation of his three-part denial of Christ, right? The night he's betrayed, they're in the Garden of Gethsemane, you know the story, right? Three times Peter's asked, aren't you one of his followers? Weren't you with him, this Jesus character? And three times, and Jesus had prophesied before it even happened that this would happen, three times, despite that prophetic warning, Peter denies Christ. Denies that he even knows him, right? That was important. That was serious. That that was essentially a verbal renunciation of his faith in Christ. So Jesus understood that Peter had to be restored. So what does he do? When he comes back after the resurrection and he encounters Peter at the Sea of Galilee, takes him out for a little walk along the seashore, and he asks a question three times. This is not insignificant. Peter's, Peter's walking with Jesus on the shoreline, and Jesus says to Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus says, feed my sheep. And then he says it, asks it again, the same question. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know, of course I love you. Peter, feed my lamb. And then a third time, Jesus asked the question. And Peter's like, Jesus, come on, what's going on? Well, don't, don't you, yeah, I, yes, I love you. Peter, feed my sheep. Why? Why did that interaction take place? Because Jesus understood that Peter had to verbally renounce his prior denial of Christ. There's a connection between those two experiences in Peter's life. Three times he denied Christ, three times he affirmed Christ. And notice, in response to that affirmation, Jesus says, okay then, here's what I want you to do. Feed my sheep. Which is Jesus' symbolic way of saying, teach people about who I am. Teach them the truth about who I am. Right? So I think of that as an example of the power of renunciation. Peter had to renounce his prior denial of Christ, and Jesus knew it. Here's another example, and this one reminds me of the story we saw at the beginning of the message from Yasmin, the video. This is found in Acts 19, verses 18 and following, 18 to 20. Again, and this is, uh, the setting here is Ephesus, the very place where we, you know, a few minutes ago looked at the advice that Paul gave to Timothy, who was pastoring the church in Ephesus. Do you remember the story? Go back and read Acts chapter 19, and it's remarkable 
how much of what happened in Ephesus revolves around the practice of false religion. It was, it was huge. Here's what we read in verses 18 to 20. Many of those who believed in Jesus, that is, now came and openly confessed what they had done, that is, their prior involvement in false religion and idolatry. And then here's what they did as a result of that confession. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. They destroyed everything that they had that connected them to false religion or spiritual experience, witchcraft or idolatry. And when they'd calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Maybe you're wondering, what, what, what's the big deal? You know, maybe, maybe somebody just went out the backyard and had a little fire and they burned their stuff. And how come all of a sudden then the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power? How does that work? Well, no, the clue is right here, but you have to think about it and do a little research. Do you know how much 50,000 drachmas is? Anybody familiar? One drachma is a silver coin that represents one day's wages. So 50,000 drachmas is 50,000 days' wages. Divide that by 365. Let's just say, theoretically, nobody would ever do this, but let's just say you worked every single day for one year. Do you know how many years you'd have to work to earn 50,000 drachmas? Anybody doing the math really quick? 136 years, I'll tell you the answer. You'd have to work almost 137 years. 365 days a week, or year, days a year, for 137 years to earn that much money. In other words, this was a big fire. There were a lot of people participating, a lot of people coming to faith in Jesus and renouncing their prior involvement in false religion. In fact, it was such a big deal in the city of Ephesus that you read a little bit later down in the chapter that a guy named Demetrius was afraid of losing his livelihood because he was a, a metalsmith. He was a silver worker whose livelihood was to make idols of the goddess Diana who was worshipped at the temple in, in Ephesus. He was losing business because so many people were coming to faith and renouncing their involvement in idolatry. And so he created a riot in the town square and... Uh, the rest is history. It's, a big, it's, a, it's an incredible story. If you read, I won't take the time to go through it all. But the point is, the people of Ephesus who came to faith in Christ understood the priority of publicly renouncing their prior involvement in false religion and idolatry. And they, they did it. They got free from that influence. 